Well, I invite you to turn in the Bible to Luke chapter 7 this morning. We'll begin in verse 18 for our consideration of God's Word. Luke 7 verse 18, you'll find that on page 863 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I do invite you to have a copy of God's Word open. Of course, the Scripture will be on the screen as it is every Sunday. But what we're going to do this morning uh, is our custom. We're just going to work verse by verse, constantly referring back to the Word of God. And to have the Bible open is going to help you engage in this message. And it's going to help remind you that what you're hearing is simply not man's words, but an exposition of God's words. So please uh, find your way to Luke 7, verse 18, and page 863. And as you're finding your way there, I do want to let you know that our brother uh, Mark will be traveling to uh, Ghana with equipped to serve and you mark you're going to be leaving on thursday if i'm correct and then returning in about 10 days um uh, saturday the 22nd and so uh, you might want to just jot that down as a reminder to pray for mark mark is going to be going into interior ghana and there he's going to come alongside equipped to serve in training rural pastors and so we're excited for you brother and uh, trust god is going to use your ministry mightily we'll pray for you in just a moment And so Luke chapter 7, verse 18, please hear now the word of God. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the the words of our Lord that he may even speak to us today. Though he has ascended to heaven thousands of years ago, he continues to speak through the word in which he has given us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we gather today with a great honor before us. The great privilege it is to know more about our Savior, our King. That's why we come. We come because we want to know Jesus more. We want our faith to be strengthened and our love to be kindled. 
We want us want to be changed that we would give more of our lives to you, even as we endeavored to sing this morning, that we would live for you. So that's our prayer, Father. Will you please take your word now and make these your children more like your son and our Lord. We thank you for our brother Mark and his desire to see you glorified in Ghana. We thank you for this church that we can begin to engage this faraway country. We ask that your hand will rest upon him, that you would equip him, that he would go as your man to this faraway place, and that through your spirit, the church in Ghana may be sanctified, may be trained, that they may more faithfully preach the gospel, that your kingdom may abound in that land, and that you may be glorified and honored. And so we ask you to bless him, those who go with him, that you would do this for your great name's sake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever doubted your faith? Have, have you ever, you know, occasionally maybe, or maybe more than occasionally, considered, you know, is Christianity... I mean, really right? I mean, is this the, for instance, the only way to God? Is everybody else really all wrong? It's just a myth? Is there really God in all? I would suggest that many people, out of nowhere, many who follow Christ, occasionally have these doubts. Happens to most of us. Certainly has happened to me, and I trust will happen to me again. That all of a sudden you're going along and and there's this doubt, there's this question in your mind, is this really true? I would suggest to you this morning that you are not alone in doubting. In fact, Christians are not alone in doubting. I, I would suggest to you that those who have no faith also doubt their lack of belief. C.S. Lewis, a man who was well acquainted with living with no faith, For much of his adult life, a devout atheist, once wrote, Just as the Christian has his moments when the clamor of this visible and audible world is so persistent and the whisper of the spiritual world so faint that faith and reason can hardly stick to their guns, so, as I well remember, the atheist also has his moments of shuddering misgiving of an all but irresistible suspicion that the old tales may, after all, be true. That something or someone from outside may at any moment break into his neat, explicable, mechanical universe. Believe in God, and you will face hours when it seems obvious that this material world is the only reality. Disbelieve in Him, and you must face hours when this material world seems to shout at you that it is not all. No conviction, he concludes, religious or irreligious, will of itself end once and for all this fifth columnist in the soul. Everyone doubts. And doubting for the Christian is not just for the weak Christian, even even the strong Christians. Those who have been following Christ for decades, devoted Christians sometimes doubt. Charles Spurgeon would write... Some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others have nevertheless been subject of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. See, even those that are most faithful, those most committed to God, sometimes find 
faith hard. Particularly when life is hard. That seems to be the case in John the Baptist. You know, verse 18 of our text, the Bible says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And John, we find him doubting. Now, now you remember, uh, if there was ever a man certain about Jesus, it was John. I mean, he was set apart to bear witness to Jesus. I mean, that was his whole job. That was the purpose of his existence, to point people to Jesus, get them ready for Jesus. And his job even started in the womb. Remember that? He was filled with the Spirit, and, and he's six months in his mother's womb, and Jesus is about a couple days in Mary's womb, and he's leaping for joy in the womb because he's in the presence of the Messiah. He knows who Jesus is. He is this mighty preacher in the desert. Who yells at people for a living. He's just bold. He doesn't care what people think at all. He has no doubt in Jesus. In fact, Jesus shows up and John has an incredible statement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, think about this man. His dad speaks with Gabriel. He's a miracle baby. He's filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He's a mighty prophet, the herald of the coming king, a thriving ministry. Here's God speaks from heaven, inaugurates Jesus' ministry, declares I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And now in a dark moment and a troubled heart, he wonders, are you the one who is to come? Or should we start looking for another? He wonders, is it all true? That's fascinating to me. In fact, it seems that John is asking this question, as we'll see in a moment, in light of the suffering in which he's enduring. You know, in in light of all my hardship, are you truly the one? This seems to be a very modern question, doesn't it? It's not just a question for a Christian who sometimes doubts or plagued by doubts. It's a question that the world has been asking. In in light of all the bad stuff, in light of all the evil in this world, how can we know for sure that Christ is the one? And so what I would like to do this morning is consider Jesus' answer to that question. To consider the evidence that Jesus lays out before us that He truly is the one. And and we'll not only amazingly not, not only see how Jesus deals with doubt... He'll show us that He's not only worthy of our, of our trust, He at the same time will show us He is worthy of our love, our worship. So let's begin by considering why it is we doubt. Why we doubt. Why, why did John doubt, for instance? He will guide us a little bit. And I, I think we probably could uh, say there's many reasons we doubt. Uh, I, just considering John's situation, I, I came up with three, and, and they all seem to be intertwined. They're all related to each other. It seems the first reason we might doubt is difficulties in our life. Remember that uh, Jesus comes to John and and Jesus says, Okay, John, I want you to baptize me. And John says, No, I'm not going to baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, I'm God. Do what I say. And John says, Okay. And and he he baptizes Jesus. And God speaks from heaven. The Holy Spirit descends. And Jesus goes off to war with the devil. But John, John remains in the water, doesn't he? And his ministry doesn't stop. He continues to to preach. Uh, He continues to call for repentance. He's pointing out people's sin. Specifically, he's pointing out Herod's sin, who was the king in this area at this time. Now, now Herod would have been, uh, in in modern day, he would have been a good guest on daytime talk television. Um, He has a relationship, uh, an affair with his brother's wife. And then he becomes aroused by his teenage niece. 
And, and John's there. In fact, we'll turn over to the, back to Luke chapter 3. You want to see what John says? John, John uh, <laughs> he calls Herod out on this. Right? And I just want to remind you, there's no free speech in Rome at this time. Right? And so he's publicly declaring in verse 19 of chapter 3, the Bible says, But Herod the Tetrarch, whom had been reproved by him, that's John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John is thrown in prison. The historian Josephus calls, names the prison, it's called the Macareus. You could go see it today. It still exists. It is a desert fortress perched on a desolate ridge overlooking the Dead Sea. A very desolate and dry place. Seems that John has been in prison for a year when he hears that Jesus has raised the widow's son. You see that there in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And so they came to John and told John what Jesus was doing. He's raising the dead and, and, and all the other things, I trust. More than that, they told him what he was doing. And, and he begins to hear these things. And you just think about what must be going in John's mind. There was one time when he was the sensation of the nation, right? I mean, he was, he was, he was uh, very, very powerful and very influential. And now he's locked away in prison. Now he's forgotten. And now he's irrelevant. And he seems to to use Bunyan's language, he's, he's languishing in Doubting Castle. Wondering, why is this happening? I mean, because Jesus has called me. God has called me, set me apart to get people ready for Him. And I can't do that if I'm in prison. I mean, this is the opposite. Why is this trouble in my life? It seems like that, that happens to us as well. When trouble arises, so does doubt. Why my prayers not be answered? Is God even listening to me? Where's the rescue? Do you know those thoughts? I've had them. Where are you, God? Doubt rises in difficulties, but even more than that, disappointments. It's not just the trials that John's facing. It's the, the, the different expectations that he's facing. In fact, if you're still in chapter 3, look what he says about Jesus' ministry in verse 17. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John understands Jesus' ministry not simply, uh, if at all, as a spiritual salvation. He understands Jesus has come to destroy his enemies. And, and none of that's happening. We're not seeing any of this judgment whatsoever. The self-righteous are still smug and wickedness is still rampant and Herod is still living in sin and luxury. Like nothing's changed. This has been going on for centuries and, and nothing's changed. And the Messiah is supposed to come and judge sin. He's supposed to come and, and exercise power. And all I hear him doing is he's eating with sinners and he's talking about forgiveness and he's helping perhaps the, the sick. Now, of course, that's good. But we could use a little fiery judgment around here. We, we could use a, a, a little wrath around here. Where's the powerful ruler that's supposed to come with his winnowing fork in his hand? Where's the son of David? In fact, didn't I hear him? Didn't I hear that he proclaimed that, that I've come to set the captives free? Well, when's that going to happen? Because I'm still in prison. Right? Life is not going according to plan for John. I don't know if, if your life's gone according to your plan. Mine certainly hasn't. For my great gain. Life sometimes doesn't, doesn't go the way we want. Sometimes it's not for our gain, at least apparently. And doubts rise. I wonder if an uh, incomplete perspective related to this is also gives rise to doubt. It seems to me clear that John doesn't understand how it's all going to work out. That's why he sends his disciples to Jesus. He's, he has no idea that Jesus plans to bring his kingdom by offering forgiveness through 
bloodshed grace before he brings judgment. He doesn't see it. That's true for us, isn't it? Right? We, don't, we don't know where life is headed. You know, as I just mentioned, are, I mean, are you at the place in your life where you thought you would be, you planned out to be 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago? Do you have any idea where you'll be in 10 years from now? We don't. See, sometimes we think, well, what is, what is going on? We, we, we don't know what God is doing. We never have the whole picture. And there sometimes doubt rises. And this seems to be plaguing John's heart as it does at times plague our hearts. And so what does John do with the doubts that he has? Well, first of all, you notice that he shares his doubts. So if these doubts come in the midst of difficulties and, and uh, disappointments and limited perspective, we, we ought to share them with the Lord. Right? He shares them with Jesus. You see that in verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him. He sent them out to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And so John's in prison waiting for the judgment of the Messiah and it's not coming. And he's, he seems like he's not sure anymore. And so he says, we need to ask him. And so he sends disciples to Jesus. Are, are you the one? Are you the promised one? Are you the Savior? Are you the King? Are you the Messiah? I think it's you. I've been telling everybody it's you. And I'm not sure anymore. He shares his doubts. But notice how he does it. He shares his doubts with humility. You notice there's no demands there. It's just a question. It's not, John doesn't say, okay, get me out of prison and then I'll believe you're the Messiah. Right? He just simply asks, are you the one who is to come? See, we're, I, I think we're often not like that in the midst of our doubts. We, we often say, I don't believe because of this, or I will believe if this happens to me. Or, and, and we have all these demands and these boxes that God needs to check in order for our, our faith to be strong. Remember the thieves on the cross and the, the, the one thief on one of Jesus' side says, Hey, get us down from here and then we will believe that you're the Messiah. In other words, prove you are who you say you are by doing what I want. By solving my problems. I'll believe in you if you let me have the life I want. You, you, you let me do what I want. You let me have the marriage I want, the lifestyle I want. But John makes no demands upon Jesus whatsoever. He just comes to him through his uh, disciples and he says, not let me out of prison and I'll believe. He just says, I need help here. Are you the one or is there another? He just simply asks the question with an ear to receive. He shares those doubts with the Lord. And I think sometimes we don't share our doubts when they come because we're afraid of them. We're afraid of where they'll lead us. We, we think, I can't believe I'm even doubting. And they scare us. And... and I, I think John shows us, well, if, if they're persistent enough, they come up in our heart enough, we need to actually talk about them. We need to talk, about, talk to the Lord about them. I'm struggling here. We need to talk to our, our community group about them. Our, our brothers and sisters are close to them. I, I'm struggling this. I have this question. I can't seem to figure out. We need to share our doubts. And, and it's my great hope that Hamilton Baptist Church is never a faith community that's afraid of hard questions. I certainly will never, God willing, call you to believe. Just believe. Just stuff your questions away. You just have to believe. We do not. I don't believe the Bible teaches blind faith at all. It teaches a reasoned out faith based upon the evidence before us that we should believe. And if John is honest about our doubts, then the church should be honest about them as well. I think we need to, to share them. We need to, to be able to speak about them and not be afraid of them. And, and when we do, we're open for the answer in which we might receive. I think some skeptics don't share their doubts because they're afraid they're actually evidence, too much evidence for faith. 
and they don't want to talk about it because they may realize that they will be forced into understanding that Christ is true. We're scared of our doubts, but sometimes we, we may not talk about our doubts because we're scared of God. We're afraid that God's going to be angry with us for doubting. It's interesting, when Jesus is traveling along with the apostles, he, 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 he almost has a nickname for them, right? Oh, you of little faith, right? Oh, you of little faith, you know, let's go fishing, right? He's constantly calling them this. This is how he identifies them. And here come, comes John, and John says, are you the one, right? Uh, are you the actually Messiah? And we're almost kind of waiting for Jesus to blast him, right? Here it comes. Really, John? Am I the one? I mean, is this not your job? Is this not what God has prepared for you to do, to point to me? How long do I have to put up with you, John? When are you going to get with the program, John? But there's no rebuke. There's none of it. Jesus doesn't turn on him at all. Because John doesn't sit on his doubts. He's fighting against them. He's trying to overcome them. See, God, I think, gets upset when our faith is weak and we don't do anything about it. But when our faith is weak and we're crying out for help, God is pleased to come and help us. I would suggest that we should bring our doubts to the Lord. When life is hard and it's not going as we expect it to go, we should share with the Lord what we're feeling. And as we seek, God, I think, will answer those questions. He will assure us of His faithfulness. In fact, He will provide us with evidence to believe, just as He does for John. And so we not only share our doubts with the Lord, but we should consider the evidence it's interesting here, Jesus is going to answer John's question. And he doesn't do it by meeting John's expectations. He doesn't say, oh yeah, I forgot I was supposed to overthrow Rome. Let me get to that. Right? No, it's not. he's not going to do what John wanted him to do. He doesn't change John's life in order that John might believe. But he does give evidence. He does give reasons. And he has these two disciples of John. He says, why don't you sit down here for, for an hour? I want to show you something. Look in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And so he begins to act miraculously. This is outbreak of healing, outbreak of the powerful compassion of the Lord. And then once he's done, he turns back to those men. And in verse 22 says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Why don't you go tell John that people have opened their eyes. Tell John that mothers are seeing their children for the first time. Tell John that people are squinting because the sun is too bright and they haven't seen the blue sky in years. Tell John that the blind see. And while you're at it, why don't you tell John that the lame walk? Tell John that little kids are pushing away their wheelchairs and climbing up trees and jumping in ponds. Tell John that the, the, the lame beggars are jumping up for joy and running home. You tell John that the lame walk. You should tell John as well that the lepers are no longer shouting unclean, but they're actually shouting clean, I'm clean. You tell John that they're not suffering this slow, painful death. You tell John that they're not running away from people. They're running home to embrace their wife and kiss their children. Tell John that the lepers are cleansed. And while you're there, why don't you tell John that the deaf hear? And that those who, who have never heard a bird chirp or a congregation sing or the voice of their beloved now hear it all. You tell John that the deaf hear. And, and if you're there, you should probably tell John that the dead are now raised up. They are alive. And by the way, tell John that the good news is preached to the poor. 
That is just not my miraculous activity, but I am proclaiming salvation to the outsiders, those on the margins, those who have nothing. I am offering them grace and eternal life and salvation. You tell John I've come to bring good news. It reminds me of Charles Wesley who wrote... Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. That's what's happening. It's a powerful answer as Jesus begins to work in an amazing and miraculous way. And yet there may be part of you that, I don't know, maybe not, that you're thinking, oh, this is pretty cool, and and, and all this is, is wonderful. But couldn't we get a yes or a no? I mean, are you the one? That's the question. Couldn't he just said, yeah, go tell John, I'm the one. I'm the one to come. That's me. But if you, if you have that thought in your heart, the reason you have it is because you don't know the Bible as well as John did. Because anyone can say yes. But what Jesus is specifically doing, he's doing something so much better. He is fulfilling the prophecy. That was foretold hundreds, 700 years, especially by the prophet Isaiah, prior to him stepping foot upon this earth as to what he would do. And when they come back and they tell John this, John's immediately going to think of Isaiah 26. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise when the Messiah comes. Or he'll think about the heaven of the Messiah in Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They shall come, then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Or he'll think about Isaiah 61 when the Messiah comes. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. You notice why Jesus chooses to do these miracles? Right? He doesn't like levitate off the ground or something. Or pick up a boulder and throw it across the field or blast a mountain off. Because he's not simply just flexing his muscles. It's not simply a naked display of power. He is providing them with, John, with, with biblical evidence. He is, he is showing that he is the Messiah through the biblical truth proclaimed about him. You see, his miracles are proof he is the Messiah. And he goes back to the scripture and he's fulfilling the scripture. Just like when Jesus was with those two doubting uh, uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what does he do to, to prove to them that he is risen? He doesn't immediately reveal himself to them. He starts with Moses, starts with Genesis and works through the entire Old Testament to teach them that the Savior must die and three days later be raised from the dead. He provides this, this wonderful biblical truth. So tell John that all that Isaiah said would happen when the Messiah comes is happening. Because I am the Messiah. You see how Jesus is helping us fight against doubt. When, when your expectations are not met and, and trouble comes upon you, how do you fight? You go to the Word. You go to the revelation of God. You, you pick up the Gospel of Luke or Mark or Matthew or John. You read about Jesus. You consider His works and His words. You, you remember why it is that you first believed. So I wonder, when, if you have these doubts, and, and, and when you have these doubts, do you run to Scripture? Or do you linger on the reasons to disbelieve? Do you just kind of go over the evidence why you should not believe? Or do you consider the evidence for faith? See, Jesus here, he, He's given us His account of His life so that we can read it, so that we could understand who He is, that we, our faith can be strengthened against uh, when our emotions rise up and fight against our faith. We'll have a, an anchor, a foundation upon which to stand. That Jesus has given us His Word. Read the Gospels. Join a Bible study. Consider what God has done. 
His word, of course, won't make your life easy. But when the storm of doubts come in your life, it will be a refuge for you. See, the miracles in which he does are proof that he is the Messiah. But what's interesting is the miracles are more than proof. They're pointers. They're pointers to where he's taking the world. Right? There's a reason Jesus is not flying around or jumping off buildings in order to prove that he's the Messiah. Because what he wants to do is not only fulfill the prophecy, he wants to point us to what he plans to do. And you notice when Jesus acts miraculously, it's never out of self-interest. Right? I mean, he's out there sleeping on the ground, traveling about. He never, you know, he never like floats off the ground an inch or two to get away from the root or the rock. He never uses the miraculous activity for his own benefit. It's almost always to alleviate suffering of others, just as we see here. In fact, uh, one individual wrote years ago, the number of miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. If this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration. We greatly underestimate his beneficent activity as he went about feeding the hungry, healing the sick and the blind, liberating the oppressed, raising the dead, as Luke said, going everywhere, doing good. And so he's, he's showing, he's pointing us. In fact, he's pointing us a couple of places. He's, he's reminding us of where we've been. He's reminding us of, of where the world was like, how God made it, how God intended it to be. When he feeds the hungry, he reminds us that there was once a time when no one was starving to death, when no one was begging for food. And, and when he heals the sick and he raises the dead, he reminds us there once was a time when there was no sickness. And there was no death to rise up and oppose us. There was no suffering. When he stills a storm, he reminds us there was once a time when nature was, you know, was only our friend and never our enemy. He, he reminds us of what the world once was like before we decided to rise up and rebel against the Creator and, and become our own King and become our own Lord. And Jesus is pointing us back to what the world was like when he does these miraculous activities. I think Tim Keller is right when he preached, miracles are not the suspension of natural laws, they are the restoration of natural laws. Death, decay, and suffering suspend God's natural order. Jesus is putting it back. He reminds us of where we've been. He shows us where we're going. There's a reason heaven is described as the absence of suffering and conflict, the absence of decay and death, a place of feasting and singing and celebration and joy. You should look at these miracles and realize that Jesus is no more, no happier with the state of this world than you and I are. And he intends to fix it. He intends to renew it, to redeem it. And he will come back and one day do that. But in the meantime, he's left us on this earth, hasn't he? And so the miracles not only point behind where we've come from and point ahead to where we're going, they also instruct us how to act along the way. Right? Because Jesus, if Jesus is not happy with injustice and suffering and sickness and starvation, then we too must be moved to alleviate it when we see it. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity is a fighting religion. When we see cancer or a slum, we say that ought not to be and do what we can. We need to fight against it. We too should be like Jesus, working in this world to alleviate suffering. I think this is what Jesus means when in John 14 he says, when I leave, you're going to do greater works than I. He's not, going to, he's not saying your miracles are going to be greater. The apostles didn't even do greater miracles than Jesus. But he is saying when there are millions of you, tens of millions of you, and you begin to act like I do, the impact that you will have upon this world far exceeds the impact that I actually am going to have here living for these three years in Palestine. 
He says, when you go and you begin to act like me, you accomplish more than I ever did. And so when Jesus is helping us understand that we are to be here to alleviate suffering, of course, that's not all. He proclaims the good news to the poor. In fact, it seems when Jesus almost always heals somebody, he's always interested in their faith. Tell me about your faith about who I am and how I can do that. I'm going to proclaim the good news to the poor. And so when we go and we volunteer in the Pregnancy Support Center or Tree of Life or some of the other ministries in which we partner with, or we go to Ghana and and try to minister to people who who have less than we do, people who are suffering, we we do that to alleviate people's suffering as Christ has showed us. But we also say, let me tell you who taught me how to do this. It's Jesus Christ. And He has come not so that you may be fed or you may be housed or clothed, but ultimately He has come so that you might know the Father. You might know the One who has created this all. He shows us, He instructs us what to do along the way. Well, Jesus has one last word for John's disciples. There's a beatitude there in verse 23. He says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by Me. You know what He's saying? Trust Me. Listen, I've given you enough evidence. I've done this publicly. I've done this in front of hundreds and thousands of people. Blessed are those who trust me. Blessed are those who remain loyal to me in the midst of hardship and disappointments. Blessed are you when you trust me when things are not going the way you think they ought to go. Of course, he puts it in the negative, doesn't he, in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Your translation may say, blessed is the one who does not stumble over me. In fact, what he's doing in quoting this uh, mentioned this proverb is actually referring back to another prophecy in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. When it speaks about the Messiah, he will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, and many stumble on it. You see, it was not only predicted that Messiah would do all these wonderful, incredible, miraculous activities to alleviate suffering. It was also foretold that many would be offended by him. Many be troubled by him. Many would stumble over him. That continues today, doesn't it? Right? Many are offended when Jesus says, I'm the only way to heaven. Many are offended when Jesus says, you have to worship me. You have to obey me. They're offended when, when he says, I will one day return as the judge of the living and the dead. They're offended when he calls our behavior sinful. They're offended when he says, you can't sleep with your girlfriend. Or a marriage is between a man and a woman. Or you shouldn't gossip. Or you need to turn away from greed. Or you need to give sacrificially. So people will be offended at Jesus. And he says, blessed is the one who is not offended at me. Therefore, you Christian... If you follow Christ well, how are people going to treat you? They're going to be offended at you. The more you're like Christ, the more offensive you will be. Just as John was, right? John's ministry was offensive. It brought this persecution on him. And so in some sense, Jesus is saying, Blessed are you when when the offense that you bring for being a Christian doesn't offend you. Right? Let me put that another way. Blessed are you when you, because I'm so offensive, you try to take away my, when you decide not to take away my offense. What I mean by that is that people who claim the name of Christ are constantly trying to make Jesus less offensive. Are constantly trying to make Jesus more palatable to this world and take away the offense of Christ and say, well, you know, Jesus loves you the way you are. You don't have to change. You don't have to repent. You don't have to do anything. Just, just come to Jesus. He, he loves you. And, and when we, well, of course, he does love you, but when we say that Jesus doesn't make demands upon us, and that Jesus doesn't call this a sin and this a sin, and so forth, and we turn Jesus into this Mr. Nice Guy, we make a mockery of the historical Jesus. 
They didn't kill him because he was Mr. Nice Guy. They, they killed him because he was offensive to them. In fact, in the very act of his death, he offends. The cross is terribly offensive. If you know why he died, he died on a cross because we are so incredibly sinful. We are so incredibly um, rebellious against God, so much so that the Son of God had to die on the cross. And so when He's dying on the cross, He is declaring to all of creation, understand how sinful you are in my death. And at the same time, understand how loved you are in my death. Because I am dying to bear your sin upon me. And blessed are you when you're not offended at me. Blessed are you when you don't try to change me so I'm less offensive. Maybe, Christian, you're offended by Jesus. Maybe life isn't going as, as you planned, right? You had the script, and, and it's not, I mean, God's not reading his lines. Right? And it's not, not going well. Blessed are you when Jesus says, blessed are you when you trust me, when things aren't going like you want them to go. Blessed are you when you say, despite all the evidence, I know who you are and I know you love me because you died on the cross for me and you rose from the dead. Blessed are you when you remain loyal to me when all of life seems to be coming undone. And so he declares this. And it almost, right in the context, thinks, well, is he rebuking John? Is he a little irritated with him? Right? I mean, because if someone, you know, a close friend wrote you a letter and said, you know, I'm not sure you are who I thought you were. You may get a little annoyed. You may be upset. Which is why the next verses are so important. Because after answering John's request for evidence of Christ's Messiahship, he defends and affirms John. And, And now here's the amazing thing. He does so in a way that helps us remember who we are in Christ. He affirms John in a way that reminds us of the blessings in which we have received in Christ. And this, I believe, is another way in which we fight doubt. We remember what we have in Christ. So look in verse 24 with me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? I just want to remind you that John preached in the desert, in the wilderness. And great crowds went to him. And so you know you're a good preacher. If you could bring people out to the desert to hear you, right? No air conditioning, no seats, no, no bathrooms. We're just going out to the wilderness to hear the preacher, right? And so John is out, out and, and people flock to him. The Bible says all of Judea came to him. Well, what, what were they going to see? Well, Jesus asks a series of questions, doesn't he? Uh, uh, end of verse 24, reed shaken by the wind. That's a metaphor, Jesus said, did you, did you go out to see a kind of a go-with-the-flow kind of guy? A pole watcher? Someone has their kind of finger in the wind, seeing where, which way the, the, the cultural movements are going? An ear tickler? Did you, did you go out to see a pushover? No. John's no pushover. Right? Some people are totally committed to Christ until a little temptation comes or a little opposition comes. And then they wilt and they compromise. Not John. John does not wilt in the face of opposition. He's not blown by the wind. He's not a pushover. Well, Jesus asked another question. Verse 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. Right, what did you expect to see out in the wilderness? A guy in a sweater? Right? A little cashmere? Right? Prophets don't wear cardigans. Right? You can't, it doesn't work. You can't say, repent, says the man in the sweater vest. It doesn't work. 
You didn't go out to see a pansy, Jesus. Right? You didn't go out to see someone living in luxury with all his fine clothes. You went out uh, not, not to see someone who, who is trying to, to, to say what you want to hear. You went out to see a crazy man, really, with his hair wild and bugs in his teeth and honey in his beard. And he's out there proclaiming the Word of God. It wasn't a pushover. It wasn't a pansy. What, what then did you go out to see? Verse 26. What, are you asking? What then did you go out to see? A prophet. You went... You went to see a prophet. You went out to the desert to hear someone chosen by God. Right? Priests, they, they come from a family line. They're just born into it. They have their training. They pass their exams. But a prophet, well, that's someone handpicked by God. Someone the Holy Spirit rests upon him. Right? Prophets don't come out of seminary. They walk out of the woods. They go and spend time with God, and then they come out and serve God with utter devotion. And this is John, who is a prophet, but it's more than that. Read on. Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Right? So he's, he's, he's more than a prophet. Not that he's a higher office than a prophet, but he's the prophet. He's the one that is to come to actually get everyone ready for the Lord, to inaugurate the new covenant. And in fact, this prophet is actually prophesied about. And he may, I may be wrong on this, but he may be the only prophet who was prophesied that he's coming. Of course, there's all sorts of prophecies about Jesus coming, but there is a prophet named John who Malachi said, I want you to know who's coming. There's a man named John, and he is going to announce the breakthrough of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus, even more than that, says in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Ezekiel, Daniel, none of them. They all looked forward to the coming king. John introduced him. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. The greatest privilege of all the prophets. Now, you may be thinking, okay, that's nice, so, uh, that's good for John, right? All right, John's a cool guy. But, well, so what? what is that, how does that impact me? Well, Jesus is doing all of this just to set the table for what he's about to announce. See, he begins by describing John, but then he describes you. Look in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is in the least of the kingdom of God is greater than he. As great as John the Baptist was, you, my Christian brother and sister, are greater. The greatest man up to this point, born of woman, and Jesus says, says, I, I notice how verse 28 says, I begins, I tell you, I want you to hear something. I, I want you to know something in the midst of your doubts and your difficulties. That you, I want you to understand your incredible privilege. I want you to understand your incredible blessedness. That John's greatness is nothing compared to your greatness. We think, well, how can that be? If, I mean, how can, I mean, I, I, John's in the Bible. I see him doing these incredible things. How can we be greater than John? Well, there's a number of ways, I believe. We have a, certainly a greater understanding than John. You may think all the saints of the old had all the privileges. Oh, what it would have been like to be like Abraham and talk to God or Moses be used by God. I mean, it would be awesome to see God really act and, and do these wonderful and incredible things. I would suggest he was the other way around. 
Moses and Abraham and Ezekiel and Elisha longed, dreamed to know what you and I know. I know this because Peter tells us that the prophets of old, they they told about the coming Messiah, but they didn't know the full extent of what they were talking about. And they longed to know more deeply what it is we now know. What a blessing it is. Do you understand what a blessing it is to know who Christ is, to know Jesus and to be able to watch Him in the Word and to see Him die and then come up from the grave and ascend to heaven and know He's coming back again. What a privilege it is to understand the, the coming kingdom and the church is just not about a single race, but it is about people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation. To know about the Holy Spirit that indwells us and empowers us. To understand that we are the temple of God. What a glorious truth it is to know that salvation is found through grace and mercy by the shed blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have an incredible understanding that John never, never had the remotest idea about. Just dreamed of knowing what you know. As J.C. Ryle said long ago, we little know how many blessed truths of the gospel were at one time seen through a glass darkly, which now appear to us plain as noonday. Our familiarity with the gospels make us blind to the extent of our privileges. We can hardly realize at this time, how many glorious verities of our faith were brought out in their full proportion by Christ's death on the cross and were never unveiled and understood until His blood was shed. Let us learn to be more thankful, he writes. The child who knows the story of the cross possesses a key to religious knowledge which patriarchs and prophets never enjoyed. We have great understanding. Great, greater, far greater than John. We also have a greater righteousness than John. Now, John was an incredible guy, right? John was, was pretty moral, wasn't he? I mean, he was certainly committed to God. God said to John, hey, John, I want you to go out to the desert and I want you to live off bugs and honey, right? And what if he said that to you? Okay, this is a job for you. You go out in the desert and I'm going to feed you with, uh, you know, grasshoppers and, and honey, right? You would say, well, I need to talk to my wife. Right? We, we, need to, we need to talk about it. We need to pray about this. John says, okay. All right. Let's go. Cool. What else you got? Uh, see, John, John was committed to God. And he's a moral man. You look your list, write your list of the moral man. John's on your list. But I tell you, this, the most morally weak Christian standing in the righteousness of Christ far exceeds the most moral man standing in his own. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How great you are. But we also have a greater privilege than John. You think, you know, John had a pretty good privilege. This is what made him so great. He came to announce Jesus, but he spoke in a partial picture. Right? You have the honor. You have the complete picture. You understand that he's come and died and rose and ascended and returning. You understand that we need to offer grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sins. It's an incredible privilege that we have. And, and, and we need to embrace this calling, to be faithful to the task. We have a task to go out and proclaim Christ that is greater than any of the Old Testament prophets. And so when, when we have our, our brother, for instance, Mark, go to this faraway land. Mark, you have a privilege greater than John the Baptist starting on Friday. Greater than, than the, the one who announced Christ was coming. You get to announce Christ has come. He has died. He has risen. And you do as well. And we have friends like, uh, like our good friends who are in the Middle East right now. And we got, I got an email from them this week. Maybe some of you did. And it says there's war all around us. It's everywhere. And yet they are faithfully talking about Jesus in a Muslim nation. 
Their privilege is greater than John the Baptist himself. And my friends, I tell you, you don't need to go to Ghana or the Middle East to have this privilege. Monday morning holds greater privileges for you than the greatest prophet in the scripture. When you go to work and they say, hey, how was your weekend? You say, well, it it was interesting. I spent some time considering why Jesus is so offensive. Or, Or you say... You know, I, I had a good weekend. We I gathered together with my brothers, my, my, my Christian friends, and we talked about uh, what do we do when we doubt our faith. I really kind of thought about that. And you begin to seek inroads to be able to talk about a crucified and risen Lord. I tell you, your privilege is astounding. In fact, I have the privilege right now. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. It is my great honor to tell you that God is so loving and gracious that he sent his son into this world to live a perfect life without sin. And he was nailed to a cross. And all the wrath of God was poured out upon him, not because he had done anything wrong, but because I have. And you have. And there he takes God's wrath, his holy punishment that is due upon me on himself. And three days later, he shows that God has accepted that penalty by rising historically and bodily from the dead. And then he sends us out. He sent me out to tell you this today. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Be saved. You'll be rightly related to a holy God, the one who had made you. And you shall live forever with him if you will bow your knee in faith to King Jesus. What a privilege we have. Will you not take that word out with you? Even in the midst of your doubts, we all have doubts. I've had doubts. I've struggled at times with disappointments, difficulties. John had his dark times. If John did, chances are you and I will. We're not supposed to carry those alone. You may be in pain this morning, my friends. You may feel locked away in a dungeon, forgotten. Don't bear that weight alone. Talk to the Lord. Talk to your church family. Go to the Scripture. Look for Jesus. Consider what He did and what He has done in your life in order that you might stand firm. This is what He's calling John to do as he matches these prophecies from Isaiah line for line. But it's interesting, what the, the passage that Craig read this morning, you, you didn't pick it out, but I saw it because I had this passage in mind. Craig, you read, where are you, Craig? You're somewhere around here. Maybe he went home, I don't know. Um, but anyways, um, he, he read the, this prophecy from Isaiah 42 about the Messiah. And there's somewhere in that, in that verse that it says, when the Messiah comes, he will set free those who are in prison. And he will let out of the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And I can almost imagine, you know, John's disciples returning and said, John, you, man, you should have been there. Because he's healing the sick and the blind are seen and the deaf are hearing and, and the lepers are cleansed. And John's going, okay, that's great. Okay, I understand. Oh, he's fulfilling that one. Okay. Oh, you really? Did he do that? He's fulfilling that prophecy. Oh, did he do that? He's fulfilling that prophecy. Did he, did he, guys, did he let anybody out of prison? What about Isaiah 42? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think he did. 
I wonder if John must have thought, well, well, that's coming, of course. I mean, that's, that's what it says in Isaiah. And Jesus clearly is aware of fulfilling Isaiah's prophecies about him. And part of me wonders if John thought, well, you know, one day these prison doors are going to swing open and I'm going to walk out and there's going to be a, a beautiful woman and we're going to get married and get a home and kind of just live a wonderful life. But one day the gates did come open, didn't they? And he'd walk out. He was dragged out. And he went to a party. And Jesus wasn't at this party. Everyone was drunk. It's a teenage girl dancing provocatively. And there Herod is sitting upon his throne. And before he knows it, his feet are kicked out from underneath him and his head is forced down upon a wooden block and a soldier raises a sword up high and down it comes, severing his head from his body. His head is then picked up off the ground and placed upon a golden platter and brought to a teenage girl. And Jesus says, I am the one. You should not look for another. And John gets his head cut off. And we struggle with the hardships in this life. And one of the reasons we do is there's a false teaching in the church that says if you live a good life, if you do this, you obey, then God is just going to make everything easy for you. Prosperity and health and, and everything's going to go easy for you. And we hear that and then when things don't go easy, when we get forgotten in prison, we begin to wonder, well, wait a second. Is he even real? Does he even exist? Is, is he even listening? Because we don't know what the Bible tells us. See, John is not the only one that gets killed. I mean, it's, uh, go down the line. Stephen, it's James, it's the apostles, it's Jesus Christ himself. And so we need to get rid of the notion that we get to control God by our behavior. In fact, rather, we should have confidence and trust and fight to believe in Him in times of sorrow and in times of joy, knowing that God is working for our good. He's constantly working for our good. That doesn't mean when the cancer diagnosis comes or you lose your job or the car accident happens that you smile and say, isn't God great? No, that's not what we're talking about. But in the pain of life, in the difficulties and the disappointments that you have when tears are streaking down your face and you don't know what tomorrow will bring, you must be able to say, God is enough for me. I will believe in Him. I will follow Him no matter where He leads me because I know He loves me. And it's not because my life is going easy. It's because the Son of God was nailed to a Roman cross for someone like me. That's enough. I follow you, Jesus. Can you say that in your heart today, my brothers and sisters? Can you say in the midst of your pain and your confusion, no matter what tomorrow brings, I'm with Christ. Our Father, we, we long to follow you. We thank you for your grace that we, we sometimes struggle. We sometimes question. We thank you for your patience with us. But when it comes down to it, Father, no matter what this life brings upon us, whether we get let loose from jail like Peter, 
Paul or forgotten, apparently forgotten in jail like John, we would follow. I don't know what's coming tomorrow for us, Lord. Some will have a great day. I trust some here will have a terrible day. But regardless of the day we have, may we fight to believe that your son sits on his throne in heaven working for our good, our eternal joy in his infinite wisdom. And we submit to you. We submit to you, our God and King, for there is no other one that we might find our joy in, our delight, our purpose in life than the one who made us. Help Hamilton Baptist Church to be a, a community of faith, an honest community of faith that can deal with struggles, but in, when it comes down to it, Father, we would be loyal to Christ regardless. Let us do that for your great namesake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.